to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie. My co-host Amy is energetic. She enjoys my sense of humor. I still don't get that. And she amuses me with her lack of moderation, which she totally engaged in this past weekend, and her technological savvy. I'm Amy. My co-host Carrie dazzles me with her people skills and her ever sunny disposition. She is so not extra that (laughs) I I have to force her to have two glasses of wine sometimes and I drag her out of her house. Basically, we're opposites, but we find common ground on our shared love of books. Each week we chat about what we're reading with each other and sometimes a special guest. We also dabble in other topics like books in the news, recent book-inspired films, our TBR counts, and general things that tease our brains. We're so glad you're listening. So we have a remix episode for you this week on Valentine's Day, and the book we discuss is all about love and the loss of it. We first talked with author Minda Honey back in the summer of 2019. During that interview, she spoke about her book of essays tentatively titled An Anthology of Assholes, which was about her dating experiences from her mid-20s to age 30 as a single Black woman. In October 2023, her book, which is now titled The Heartbreak Years, was published by Little A. We catch up with Minda about her memoir, and then we transition back to parts of our original interview, which also focuses on the Toni Morrison documentary, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. In the summer of 2019, Speed Cinema featured this film, but if you missed it then, you can find it on most streaming platforms, including Netflix and Hulu. And when we discussed Morrison, she was still living, but she died a few weeks later in August of 2019. But first, Carrie, before we get to Minda, uh, I wanted to mention a couple things. Our time travel episode last week was very popular. There are way more people who are like me and are time travel literature fans than I knew. So that was awesome. But we got some recommendations uh, from some listeners. So uh, Tiffany uh, wrote in recommending a book called All Our Wrongs Today by Elon Mastai, I don't have any idea if I'm saying that name right, which is, I think, heavily into the sci-fi set in 2016, but a 2016 that technology has solved all the world's problems. And then Leslie recommended Thief of Time by Terry Pratchett, part of his Discworld series where death is a character in the novel, and there is also a time-traveling monk. All of his books are sort of whimsical and sometimes madcap. Uh, I've not read any Terry Pratchett, but my husband is a big fan. And then Rebecca recommended a book called What the Wind Knows by Amy Harmon, which is a time slip love story set in Ireland. I'm definitely want to read that one. But she also had a recommendation for a movie that you can find on Netflix called Time Trap, which she describes as mind bendy, which sounds like something you might like, Carrie. Mm hmm. And the description of this is a group of students become trapped inside a mysterious cave where they discover time passes differently underground than on the surface. That sounds delicious. I want to mm-hmm. watch it. Very good. Yes. You um, love hearing from people. You love it when we get emails. and, and I do. Uh, I love feedback. Love me some feedback. Thing This past weekend, I was away. Uh, with some girlfriends, which is why you were saying that I did not have any moderation and I did not because we eat junk food like the whole time. All the cheese, all the chocolate, all the cookies, or maybe some wine in there too. And we oh, maybe, a, maybe and some wine. <laughs> maybe some wine. And I w- and we went on a distillery tour, which was lovely. Anyway, it was a lot of fun, but I, I'm sure that you have been watching some stuff. So what have you been watching? Yeah, so we're still we're still on dark. We're still watching that. I don't know how many more episodes. Are you, mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you're watching? No, but there's something that I am excited to watch once it comes out. I read about this. So the Sundance Film Festival was recent, like last week, and everybody knows who Will Ferrell is. You know, he's Elf and on SNL, and 
Well, apparently he and his friend, he has had a friend named Harper Steele. Uh, They met at SNL. Harper Steele was a writer. And so they've known each other for like 30 years. And Harper Steele called Will Ferrell a while back and said, hey, I'm transitioning to live my life as a woman. And so what they decided to do is they went on a road trip across America to kind of give them an opportunity to to talk about this and their friendship and, you know, to help Will Ferrell, I guess, sort of understand what was going on with his friend. And uh, it got a standing ovation at Sundance. You know, news reports are saying like a lot of the streaming companies are sort of a bidding war because Hmm. so many of these companies are like, we want to distribute this. The documentary is called Will and Harper. And I just thought, you know, I like Will Ferrell as a comedian. People who've seen it are saying, you know, it's it's funny. Will Ferrell brings humor to it. You know, there's definitely comic episodes, but it's also very touching, you know, about this long-term friendship. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it sounds like something I would enjoy. So it's not on yet, but when it is, I'm sure I'll watch it. Well, the thing that we have been watching, this is an old series. I mean, I remember when it was out. It came out in 2001, but I didn't watch it at the time. It's called Six Feet Under. Did you ever see that show? Mm -hmm. No. It was on HBO way back in the day. I think the same time like The Sopranos was on. HBO was coming out with a lot of great original programming that other networks weren't really doing yet. You know, Mm -hmm. this was one of them. You can you can see old episodes on Netflix. It was uh, six seasons long. It ran from 2001 to 2005. And it's basically the story of this dysfunctional family uh, who runs an independent funeral home in Los Angeles. So in the very first episode, the father who runs the funeral home and the funeral home is in their family home, like kind of in, they live in the, you know, the top story and the funeral home is in the main story and, and in the basement. Mm-hmm. The father dies. He dies. And now his two adult sons have to run the funeral home. There's also a teenage sister. And I think you would like it because even though there's a lot of funny things about it, it's sort of grappling with death and with life. And also one of the characters is gay and it's exploring like he he hasn't come out to his family. He's actually kind of a conservative guy and he's, he's having lots of inner struggles with himself about being gay. Hmm. And it's, it's amazing how far we've come in the last 20 years, as far as the LGBTQ community being accepted in a, in a broader culture, Mm -hmm. because I think that that might have been fairly uh, edgy in 2001. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to remember. But I feel like that there weren't a lot of TV shows that were grappling with that that in a way that wasn't sort of poking fun. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like there weren't a lot of series that I think portrayed gay people in, in a more well-rounded, positive way. That Will and Grace was going on. That comedy was going on about the same time. I never watched that show, but I think it also had you know a similar uh, vibe to it. But I really enjoyed this aspect of Six Feet Under. You know, if you like a dysfunctional family series, I would recommend this. I think, especially you might like it, Carrie, just because you're really into things about death, and this yeah, does address death in all of its ways, but you know, in a way that's not necessarily morbid, you know, and each episode actually opens up with someone dying, their family being a a customer of the funeral home. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, When I was editing this episode, it was super cringy listening to the original interview we did with Minda because I think she was maybe episode number nine. She was very early on in our podcasting adventure and we sound very calm and serious. Yeah. And now we just don't care. We're like, whatever. <laughs> you get what you get. I sent you a, a meme or a, a gif of, do you remember the SNL skit, Delicious Dish with Anna Gasteyer and Molly Shannon? And they were the NPR hosts and they talked very calmly, calmly. about about cooking and muffins and oh those are so delicious and at one point Alec Baldwin was on this show and he talked about his his sweaty balls 
uh, meatballs. <laughs> remember that? I do. Yes, I do remember that. That's how we yeah. sounded. I know. Oh my gosh. Hopefully we're a bit better. So anyway, please excuse us if we sound like we are trying way too hard to be professional. Uh, maybe we we're not professional enough. We're, we're like, right. Know. We're like, oh, we don't even care. Why are we pretending? Let's just be ourselves. <laughs> Hopefully you'll enjoy this episode with Menda, even if we sound like the sweaty balls ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk to Menda. <laughs> We are here with Minda Honey. We interviewed her way back in the before times, before COVID. I think it was 2019, maybe. And when we had you on the first time, you were head of the bachelor's writing program at Spalding University. We had you on to talk about the Toni Morrison documentary, The Pieces I Am, that came out in 2019, which if you haven't seen it, Everybody should go watch that. But we have you back on because a lot has happened since 2019 (laughs) for everybody, but especially for you. So you have had work that's appeared in Harper's Bazaar, LA Review of Books, The Washington Post, and Oxford American. You were the editor of a newsletter called Black Joy, and you have a new book out called The Heartbreak Years. And I feel like this has come full circle because when we spoke (laughs) to you last time, you were working on this book and you had a working title that was very intriguing. I think it was called maybe Anthology of Assholes. It was very intriguing. And so I am glad that we can talk to you now about this book that that you had been working on at the time. Yes. Well, unfortunately, the publisher was very against publishing a book with profanity in the title. And it was a hill that I thought I was willing to die on. But as I did more and more research, I did like a segment for our local NPR affiliate. And they were like, oh, yeah, Minda Honey, whose book title we cannot say on air. And I was like, oh, no, that's not going to that's, that's work. So I came up with the heartbreak years. And if y'all remember, when we recorded that first episode, we, we were yes, we did. It's wild. And and I almost hate the idea of going back and listening to those episodes because it was all so new. Everything still felt wonky. And now we've been doing it almost five years. And so, yay, it just feels so much more. I mean, I don't know that we, you know, come across as any better to anybody else. But when we listen to it, it, it you know, Right, right. Well, that's what I always tell my writing students is go to the very beginning of your favorite writer's work, the very first piece they had published. If you're trying to create content for social media, go back to your favorite creator's early post and you're going to see like they had to start somewhere just like you have to start somewhere because you're trying to compare yourself to this person's magnum opus. (laughs) Right. Their early days. And that's where you're at. You're at the early days. So I want to know, you know, when we talked to you last time, you were still working on it. So tell us about the time frame of when you got it, where you wanted it, and when you started, I guess, shopping it around. The book takes place from 2008 because me and my high school sweetheart, we, after I graduated from college, we road trip across America to California to house it for his grandparents and then promptly break up shortly after Obama has been elected president. So I'm 23 and I have to learn how to be single for the first time as an adult. And I'm the furthest I've ever been from everyone that I know because I've left Kentucky and I'm in Southern California. So some of these pieces I was writing in real time, like I joined this writing group and it was all older folks. And I was like the only younger person and I was the only black person. And it'd be like Philip wanting to write like his Socratic method essays. And then it's me (laughs) showing up like me and my boyfriend broke up and I want to die. Like, you know, like (laughs) eventually they stopped meeting. And I think it's because I wouldn't stop showing up. Like, I think I... (laughs) was the reason that group disbanded they could they probably just started meeting elsewhere in secret (laughs) so some of these pieces like i've literally been working on them for 15 years obviously i've grown as a person and as a writer over that span of time december of 2019 my agent reached out to me she had read an essay that i had had published in an anthology and just really wanted to represent me she at the time was an assistant so i was going to be like her first writer And she's younger. And I was just like, you know what? 
I'm going to go with it. She's at like a smaller agency. And then shortly after that, she actually left her agency and went to Aisha Pande, which is like the largest woman of color owned literary agency in New York. And she's like, oh, do you want to come with me? He's like, yes, I absolutely want to come with you. (laughs) Uh, So it worked out really well. And she signed me December 2019. And we were going to shop the book March 2020. Oh. And that's all you have to say. (laughs) Yeah. And I just started fall 2019 as the director of Spalding's undergraduate creative writing program. And so I'm in my first year as the director of a college program. I've just come back from AWP, the really big writers conference. And they're like, oh, everything is shutting down. It's a pandemic. We have to like go online. And so like, I'm trying to figure out all of this as the director of a college program. And then also it was the unjust murder of Breonna Taylor, you know, and I'm a black woman in Louisville. And so these two things were unfolding at the same time. Some of my students were her same age. Some of my students knew her sister. Some of my students lived in her neighborhood. So there was a lot of support between like the pandemic and protests that like students needed. And so my agent reached back out. She's like, hey, maybe we put a pen in this. You know, I was like, yeah, let's like, let's hold off. So we did not go out on submission until like July, June of that year, because it just, that's how long it took for me to finally finish the book proposal with everything else going on. And then I got rejected. I got rejected by like 10 editors. And she was like, I just know if we just make a couple of small tweaks, like it's going to sell. But I was all in my feelings about it. And I was like, I don't care. I'm just going to sell this book out of the trunk of my car. And because (laughs) in my previous life, I was a top salesperson in the nation. I was like, I can do it. And eventually I got got a grip. I made put two small tweaks. And at that point, it was (laughs) October. (laughs) And the book did sell at auction. And then it came out October of this past year, October 2023. So wow. That's the that's the tea. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so let me ask you, you said you you had worked on it for 15 years. Yeah. Cause I think about, you know, if I go back now and look at things I wrote, you know, when I was younger in my 20s, <laughs> and I'm older than you, it is like painful. It's it's a little bit cringy, you know, to read those Mm -hmm. things. So I I think for myself, I would want to make it not sound like that as part of my (laughs) editing process. So did you feel like that at all? And how did you go about editing your work when you had this distance between the person you were when you wrote it and the person you are now? Fortunately, I did it kind of incrementally over the years. Like I was always in writing groups, writing workshops, taking classes, did my MFA. So there was only between each version, each draft, there was like a couple of years instead of 15 years. I can go pretty far back on some of them. And it was just like, oh my God, so extreme, so drastic. This was the era of when you would sit at work and you would write your friends super long, like 5,000 word emails. And so I kept my Yahoo email account just for those artifacts. And yeah, I like went back through some of those emails and I'm like, how in the world did I write a 5,000 word email on this thing that I don't even remember anymore. Like, I was like, <laughs> you know, I felt so passionate about it. I felt then. so passionate about it. But it's really cool, though, to kind of look back on yourself with a more mature perspective. And I think that also mirrors the trajectory of your first major heartbreak because the first time you're just like, this person shattered me. I was like the best partner they could have possibly imagined. They didn't deserve me. Like this is the end of my world. And then if a little time passes and you're like, well, you know, I was in that relationship too. Maybe I wasn't always perfect. And then a little <laughs> bit more time passes and it's like, there are no villains. Like, you know, like. <laughs> and so the, the writing was kind of the same way where like I, these pieces started out with me writing about how terrible he was as a person. And then I would revise and then I would put too much weight on myself like oh you were an asshole in these ways and so then by the time I had the perspective of my 30s I could be a lot more balanced and like really give grace to myself and also give grace to all of the men well most of them that you know (laughs) appear in the book Well, the log line for your book is a hilarious and intimate portrait of a Black woman finding who she is and who she wants to be one bad date at a time, which is a great, 
great log line, I think. Uh, but I was thinking about our last conversation and about Toni Morrison and how she, you know, she has this very well-known quote that if there's a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Yeah. So, I mean, was this something that you had seen in the market or did you feel like there was a, a hole there that you could fill? Yeah, I think absolutely. Things have certainly gotten better, but there are not that many memoirs published by Black women every year. I could probably name four, maybe five this past year. And so there's absolutely that gap, that absence of certain voices. You know, I've had young women just just this week, in fact, like I got a message from a woman who said that before she read my book, she had never seen her experience so clearly articulated or seen it on the page because she's black, white, and Korean, you know, and like I'm black and I'm Filipino and I grew up in Kentucky. And as you can imagine, there are not a lot of black abinas here in the state. <laughs> so, you know, the things you have to go through as far as like addressing all aspects of your identity, you know, just wasn't something that she'd seen. And so I think there was absolutely a gap. I think that a lot of the other praise that I've gotten about the book and the writing style and the way I've chosen to tell my story is that this is a very shameless book. Like I don't shame my younger self. I do give myself grace and space for choices or mistakes I may have made. And, you know, there are a lot of angry Amazon reviewers. The fact that this book that's about dating in my twenties involves sex and drinking and (laughs) You've been living in a bubble, apparently. I don't know. And I'm like, why did you pick up this book? (laughs) Like, you read the log line. Like, we didn't mislead you, you know? Like, I, too, get upset that I go to AutoZone and I'm surrounded by automotive parts. (laughs) It's just so unapologetic. And I'm really glad that I wrote the book that I wanted to write because there are going to be, you know, the people who have negative criticisms. And... I just think as painful as that can be to hear people say terrible things about your baby, I'm like, oh, well, if they don't like this book, this is the book I wanted to write. This is my story. I told it truthfully and authentically as I could. And I just can't imagine what it would have been like if I had compromised or told a story that wasn't as true to myself. And then on top of that, got negative criticism. Like if you're going to sell out, you also want the million dollar check. (laughs) Right. Right. But that's not how books work. So you can very well sell out and then people could still hate it. So it's like if you're going to gamble getting, you know, public ridicule either way, then yeah, write the thing you want to write, write the thing that you can stand beside proudly no matter what. So I did want to ask you because, you know, as you said, there's a lot of sex in this. It is it is an intimate portrait. Once you have this like out in the world and all these people are reading it and you you talk about very personal things, is that hard? No, I mean, we can't bemoan the lack of readership and then also <laughs> wander the world as if everyone has read our books, you know? <laughs> yeah. Most Americans do not read. Most people who do read are reading one book a year. So the odds that, you know, the one book a year that somebody read was my book and then they encountered me are pretty slim. I mean, I guess the ratio is higher in Louisville because (laughs) more people bought it here and more people know me here. But for the most part, I encounter people all day, every day who have no idea that I wrote a book. And if they do know that I wrote it, they certainly, you know, may not have dedicated time out of their life to read it. So that's the way that I find peace. But I was also recently in Mexico City for a few weeks and I had someone reach out to me because they had heard me on a podcast and read my book and really enjoyed it. And they were like, hey, you know, actually, I live in Mexico City if you'd like to hang out. So I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So we ended up hanging out a few times over the course of the two weeks. And so then after I left and I went back to Kentucky, she messaged me. We were like having some sort of conversation. She's like, yeah, it was really hard because sometimes you were telling me things and I'd want to be like, oh, I read about that in the book or like, oh, I know. (laughs) And she's like, but I knew that would have been really awkward and weird for the both of us. So (laughs) I just... Well, I'm just always impressed by people who write memoirs because you're talking about your life. And like you said, when you're getting reviews, in some ways, they're sort of like reviewing your life. We can't judge other people's lives. I mean, some people can, I guess. But in the for the most part, somebody's life is their their truth. And so 
I always admire yeah, and, people and who and write memoir memoirs. Like a memoir is a sliver of your life. Like there are so many people that commented that I wanted to respond back to them. Like, hey, I was also working a full time job. I was a top salesperson. I was doing Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Like there were lots of things I was doing outside of dating. That's just not what this memoir was about. So. Mm-hmm remembering that also helped me keep it in perspective and not feel like, Oh, they're judging me because they don't really know me for real, for real. Like if you, you all have been doing this podcast for five years, you've read the memoirs of people that I'm sure that like, you know, fairly well. And for me, when I read my friends' memoirs, it's like, Oh, I know you, but this book also, like there are things in this book that I just like, I didn't know about you, but I don't necessarily feel like I know you, the person better now that I've read this memoir of your life because this was not something that happened organically through relationship. So there's like this distinction. So I would imagine that that gap is even larger when it's complete strangers. I want to ask, because you talked about the original title that you would have liked, and then you said there were two changes that your agent said, let's make those. And you've taught younger people who are wanting to write. So do you feel like you know, with this experience, learned a, a lesson that you'll then share with other people you encounter who are trying to to get their book out? Oh, like when I say that I was being really ridiculous and in my feelings, I mean, really ridiculous. Like the, the changes that my agent wanted were like, you know, a couple of sentences in this paragraph, or we're going to like, move one of the essays for like very, very minor. So they weren't like, you know, super big changes. As far as like the title went, yeah, I mean, you you do just have to kind of pick your battles with publishing. Everything is going to come down to that. Like, you know, the cover of the book, when the book comes out, the title, you know, the, the editor, like all editors are different. Uh, the editor-writer relationship can be very different. So for me, the publishing industry is kind of opaque and there are just so many things that you just can't know or won't know until Mm -hmm. you're inside of it (laughs) until you're like all caught up in the cogs of the machine and then it's like Mm -hmm. oh well I mean we we talk to writers all the time you know even though we've talked to so many I still feel like like there's a wizard behind the curtain and I'm going I still don't feel like I understand it so like you said you kind of have to go through the experience yourself and we know writers who've had to switch agents or they switch publishing. I mean, like just because you publish one book and it's a certain experience or a certain way it's done doesn't mean that you won't publish someplace else and it's not totally different. That's exactly right. And there's just always going to be the tension of like, this is a business, but this is also like your creative output. And so there's always going to be the the friction in that and trying to find like the places you can make peace with and like, you know, the things that that you can't. So I posted something about your book on Instagram a couple of weeks ago after I had finished it. And I going into it, I thought I'm not really the audience per se for this book because I've been married to the same guy for like over 30 years. And I didn't really have like a super wild 20s era. and. <laughs> I'm shocked, Amy. You weren't super wild. (laughs) I wasn't super wild, but I really enjoyed your book. But I really appreciated your book because even though maybe I didn't do some of those things, I have kids who are in that age group. And it's making me think about things that they're having to go through because my oldest son had a horrible breakup in his in his early 20s. And it like you hit the pause button for him for like several years. And my daughter, you know, is 20. And, you know, she's dating a bunch of people. And so it just it made me consider all of those things. So I would encourage anybody to read it, even if you think I might not be the audience for this book. I've gotten messages from women um, on Facebook who've said that. And, you know, just a funny story from when I recorded the audio book, I recorded it here in Louisville. Usually they're recording like, you know, local hip hop acts and things like that. So I show up and the producer is this like 20 something dude with like a face tat. And then (laughs) like, it smells like weed, like the weed. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's like, 
9 a.m. Like, <laughs> but he was so sweet. Like, got me my water. He made sure I was cozy in the studio. And so then we phone in the director, and he's in California. And he is a 60-year-old black man. So he's my dad's age. So I have this 27-year-old black guy with a face tattoo who's my producer. And this 60-year-old black man who's my dad's age. And here I am reading about my sex life. And... <laughs> By the end of the three days that we all spent together, they were both so moved by the book. The producer told me, he's like, I'm like, I've already ordered it for Christmas for my mom and my sister. And I'm 27. So like, I'm at this place in my life. And this is just like making me feel less alone. Like, you know, like apparently everybody like has these tensions at this age. And the the director was like, yeah, you know, I have daughters your age. And it also makes me think about back when me and my friends were your age and like some of the things we may have said to women that, oh, maybe we shouldn't have, you know, and they really gave me just so much support. And, you know, like this book, uh, if you as like, you know, a 30 year married white woman felt like, oh, this book isn't for me. It's definitely not for, you know, straight black men. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're kind of getting the short end of the stick in the book. (laughs) For them to both be like, we are so proud of you. We are so on board with this book. The director, when I had my LA event, like he actually came to the event. And so I think there's a little bit of something in this for everyone. And I think that has to do with the fact that there is, I was very vulnerable and very transparent about these hardships and these things that we all feel like it's just us it's happening to. And that can make you feel so alone and so isolated in it. And so one of the things that, you know, I gained some perspective on as I got older was like, oh, no, these are the sorts of hardships that happen for everyone. They just are packaged differently for different people. Mm -hmm. Well, this remix episode is going to air on Valentine's Day, which is a little ironic. (laughs) But I but I'll say that actually, I felt like by the end of the book, this should almost be a book for Galentine's Day because there was this great quote from your book that says, and for all the real estate I've given dating in my life story, my friendships are the relationships that taught me how to show care and tenderness to forgive others and myself. And I kind of love the way that you ended that with, you know, you've had all these horrible, horrible dates and men in your life. And it was really your friends, a lot of girlfriends who sort of kept you together and kept you grounded. Absolutely. And that essay is actually the, that's from the final essay in the book, the epilogue. It's not an epilogue, but it's titled as an epilogue because it's like the epilogue of my heartbreak years. That was excerpted by Memoirland. So if people want to read it as a little sneak peek into the book, they can, yeah, they can search Memoirland, Menda Honey, and I'm sure it'll come up and they can read the essay in full. But yeah, I think that that's just, again, one of those perspective shifts that you have with age. It's like, just because my romantic relationships aren't working out doesn't mean I don't have love in my life. And so when I, you know, started thinking about all of the like ways in which people love me, support me, community that I'm in, I was actually working on a piece about something else. And I was meeting with this black woman therapist and she was telling me that a lot of her clientele, not only are they talking about like the struggles of being single in their thirties and forties, but a lot of them are also friendless. And I was like, wait, I got a ton of friends. And so I was like, I've been taking my friendships for granted. And so when I really sat down and thought about it, I, you know, I could see how all through my 20s, there were all of the girls, you know, that were holding your hair when you're puking and by your side at the bar and who are willing to go on these wild rides with you and willing to listen to you complain about the men you're dating for hours. And then like in my 30s, the women that, you know, are really there for all the big life changes that happen. This is the right way to end this book. Because a lot of the books like mine end with the person finding the love of their life. And I was like, oh, that didn't happen. I almost was like, oh, it's going to be it's going to be like that. Like if I write it, he will come. But he did not. He has not arrived yet. So (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, We end it with the end of your book. And it's been great catching up with you. And we can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks for coming back on and talking to us. Thank you so much for having me back on. And yeah, if anybody, like the book is sold wherever books are sold. And you can find me online at mindahoney.com and at mindahoney across social media. (laughs) 
we want to welcome Minda Honey. She's a local writer, and she's also the director of the Spalding Creative Writing BFA program. So welcome, Minda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So one of the reasons that we have you here with us today is that the Speed Cinema at the Speed Art Museum is doing a showing of a documentary about the life of Toni Morrison. It's called The Pieces I Am. And you are doing a little talk back. So after the viewing, you're going to be leading a discussion about that. Correct. I was invited by Dean Otto, I think because he probably saw my Facebook post about how I taught Sula, an African-American literature course that I just wrapped up for Spalding. And, you know, the students had mixed reviews, but it's one of my favorite Morrison books. That film first showed at the Sundance Film Festival, and it's finally here. Have you gotten a chance to see it, or are you going to be seeing it for the first time that night? I actually watched it last night. Um, It's beautifully done. What I really appreciated about the style of this documentary was that you got a ton of Toni Morrison, and then it was just accentuated by, you know, her peers and other folks from the literary industry singing her praises, you know, as it should be. (laughs) So did she, in this film, and Amy and I are going to go see it on the, I think it's the 26th, is that right? Yes. Set it up for us. Does she talk about her motivations or how she went about writing or is it mostly like what motivated her is it maybe a little bit of all of it it's really just kind of the unfolding of a life so you really start with how her family ended up in Lorain, Ohio what her childhood was like what she was like growing up uh, and all the choices she kind of made that led her to to becoming Toni Morrison she of course also speaks about her writing practice as well as a lot about what it is to be a black woman writer and making sure that she's always centering the the black reader versus, you know, the white male gaze uh, within her work. Uh, so she talks at length about that as well. So you had mentioned about Sula, mm-hmm. that you had taught that, but you said the students weren't really on board with that. So what was it that they had issue with? They thought it was really weird. <laughs> And I'm like, just relax into the world of Toni Morrison. It's supposed to be kind of like Southern gothy and you, um, it's playful. And I think also students at that age, when you're in, you know, your late teens, early twenties, your morals are a little bit more rigid because you've yet to cross any of those taboos in life. And as you get older, life gets grayer, uh, in so many ways. And so I think they take it like, oh my gosh, she slept with her best friend's husband. Like how, like, how could Sula do this? And it's like, well, you know, life y'all life things so happen. things happen so they they can be very rigid around morality but you know i i think we all were so you said sula was your favorite of Toni Morrison's. Why Why is that? Why that one? Because it centers um, Black women friendships. I read Sula a, f- a few years ago, and I just really fell in love with the language because, I mean, it's Toni Morrison, so it's very epic. But also just the fact that she's centering the relationships between women, the friendships between women, um, this like cross-generational lineage of women really mattered a lot to me. And now that I just reread it recently with my class, I have a lot of thoughts, you know, now that I'm like a single woman in my mid thirties about Sula and Nell and that conversation that Sula and Nell have in the end when Sula's on her deathbed and Nell is, you know, heartbroken that Sula slept with her husband, her husband has left and Sula and Nell are just kind of like reviewing the choices that they've made in their lives. And Sula's like, well, you know, at least my life is my own. Like I don't have like this secondhand loneliness. And so I think about that a lot. Love is always like a risk and, you know, because people are risky and you just never know how things are going to work out. So you should make these choices that you think are going to make you happy and just kind of hope for the best instead of kind of putting all your happiness on like this other person. Um, because if you're going to be disappointed in the end, at least you, sh- you should be disappointed because you took agency over your life. So Sula now feels even more meaningful for me at this age. So when I was at Bellarmine for my undergrad, I took a, it was an entire class on Toni Morrison. Now, granted, this was like 25 plus years ago. So we read Song of Solomon, Sula, Bluest Eye, Beloved. I think probably Song of Solomon 
was my favorite, but it's been so many years since I read it that it's not a forefront. But I do remember we talked about how related to the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And and so that has kind of always stuck with me. But in terms of Morrison's story that I remember, that would be beloved. Mm-hmm. Just And I think I wasn't at the time, but now that I'm a mom, it's even more powerful. So how about you, Amy? I would say beloved. That's the first Morrison book that I read. I read it in college in a black literature class. I do like the little bit of, I don't know if you'd call it magical realism or like the little bit of a ghost story in there appealed to me as well. But that one was my favorite. I read Bluest Eye a couple of years ago and I enjoyed it. But that's just that is such a tough story. It's just really a hard story to read. Yes. Toni Morrison never lets lets us off easy no, as readers. No. So. so when you were teaching Sula to your students, did you focus more on the story or did you focus more on her writing and sort of using her writing and her sentence structure and that sort of as a model for your students? Or may- maybe you did both. Well, this was a literature class, so we mainly focused on the story. So the way I structured this class was I took a classic and I paired it with a contemporary book by a black writer to just show the the lineage of these themes that we're still dealing with. So for Sula, I paired it with The Mothers by Britt Bennett. And if you haven't read The Mothers, it takes place in San Diego. And it's about a young woman who her senior of high school becomes pregnant by a young man who's a couple years older than her, who is also the pastor's son. And her mother had like within the past year committed suicide. And, you know, she goes away to college and like kind of lives this bigger life after she has an abortion. And and her best friend stays in that town and, and marries this man. And she comes back and she has an affair with the man that she had become pregnant by because they just kind of had this unfinished business. So it was the same sort of focus on the relationships between women and also this choice between do you like hitch your life to a man and his dreams and his aspirations or do you build a life of your own, especially if you're going to end up in this lonely place regardless. So paralleling the, the themes between the the two books. So we talked a lot about the events of the books, but also just like the themes, the morals, happening, unfolding. And with Sula, we talked about the relationships among the women, but we also talked about what is happening in this town and what Sula represents to the town. And then what is happening during the timeline in history. So the book kind of takes place between the two world wars. And so we're watching the world change as you're also like watching this, this, this town change too. As you mentioned, the book Mothers, but can you see her impact in other writers and just the ability for Black writers to to have a place in literature now where for many years they didn't? Of course, I would imagine almost any young Black writer or up and coming Black writer, even established Black writer is going to say that they've been influenced or shaped in some way by by Toni Morrison. Yeah, like I read Cynthia Bond's Ruby and that's got Toni Morrison's fingerprints all over it. And it's also kind of centered in like a rural black town. And there's like these elements of magical realism to it. And the writing is just so rich. I think it speaks to the fact that like Oprah brought her book club back to make Ruby a book club pick. So, and you know, Oprah was such a huge advocate of Toni Morrison and she's heavily featured in the documentary as well. um, Why Morrison was so important to her, why it was so important that she was supporting her with the book club. And she's like, yeah, you know, I just, I put in like a few easy readers and then I'd hit them with the Morrison. So, Um, but yeah, like I think there's definitely that lineage. I think right now, particularly it's exciting to be a black writer. There seems to be like a wave that's been coming through. I think Jasmine Ward is really um, the fact that she won the national book award basically back to back like that um, has really opened a lot of doors for a lot of writers, a lot of Southern writers 
Cassie Lehman is like one of my favorite writers. I admire his work a lot. And I think that he has that that same admiration and love of words that Morrison has and that playfulness with like sentence structure and just someone who really takes a lot of joy in the work, but also knows the work is the work. So <laughs> so the Jasmine Ward Sing Unburied Sing. Oh, that's on my list. I have not read oh, it. Have my you gosh. read it? Oh, yeah. It was like that ending is just like cinematic. Amazing thing about that book is that it, it's got a very very simple plot and pretty like simple characters and what she does with it is just so wonderful and her writing always has this kind of like haunting element to it but yeah seeing unburied seeing like i must have read that book in an afternoon and as soon as i sat it down i was just like why even write anymore like like, (laughs) (laughs) let's just let jesmond ward write everything So when I was sort of preparing for this interview with you, I read up a little bit about Toni Morrison to remind myself. And I did not realize that she had been an editor mm-hmm. at Random House. And she talks a lot about the white gaze. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah. First, on the fact that she's an editor at Random House. So like I said, right now, there's this wave of black writers and Toni Morrison like created her own wave when she was an editor at Random House because she published Angela Davis. She published Gail Jones. She was just like finding these black writers and, and putting them on. So she created that that original wave. As far as like the white gaze goes, she talks about the white gaze. She talks about the white male gaze. And she just felt at that time that it was really important to be a black writer writing to black people. She's like, you know, anyone can read these books. Anyone can enjoy them. This is who I'm specifically trying to speak to. And she also speaks to the fact that a lot of Black writers just didn't have that opportunity. She talks about Frederick Douglass and, you know, she's like, white abolitionists were funding him. So there's really only so far he could go, only so much he could say, had to be restrained in some ways. And I think Black writers, we still experience that kind of boxing in. And you really do have to push back against that and just know very deeply who your audience is, who you want to connect to, who you're trying to speak to. I've been working on a memoir myself, and it's about dating as a Black woman in Southern California. Really, like you can sell a memoir on proposal these days, but I have spent a lot of time over the past few years really trying to flesh it out as much as possible because I want to make sure that none of that gets like lost in the process that this is a book for for black women about our experience and stories that don't often get told from our perspective. So I'm you know, very thankful to Morrison for really making way for that and letting people know like it is okay to write about your black experience for other black people and you don't have to explain anything to white people if you don't want to. (laughs) Well, and I think that's important for white readers to hear. Oh, absolutely. Too, because I think so much of the time, white privilege, you're not even aware that you have white privilege. And so watching her talk about that makes the white audience realize, oh, (laughs) I didn't even know that this existed. So I I think that's important for the white audience to hear and to recognize that this was uh, a mountain that had to be climbed. Sure. It still has to be climbed. That's why it was so astounding that, you know, New York Times book review that she got for Sula, where the reviewer was like, Toni Morrison is too great of a writer to only focus on writing about like the lives of rural black people. Like she's above that and she'll never be taken seriously as a writer until she's writing beyond that. And it was just like, wow, like this woman is to- just totally missing the fact that she is intentionally not centering whiteness here. And these just like the audacity to say that Toni Morrison will never be a great writer unless she chooses to center whiteness is just that woman did not see through her white privilege. <laughs> When you decided to go out to California to get your MFA, did you go out thinking, I want to be a a writer, I want to write a novel, or was it something different? I guess, what what did you sort of envision? Well, I mean, like most people that write, like I've always been writing ever since I was a little kid. I can remember typing up like my very first story on the computer. My dad's retired military. My mom works at the post office. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. I didn't know how you made a living as a writer. All I knew was like, you you go to college, you get a good job. And so that's what I did. I went to college. I went off to work for General Electric. I moved to Cincinnati for that job. I hated it. Ended up quitting. I was still with my high school sweetheart at the time. And his grandparents needed house sitters in Orange County. So after six years of dating, we moved to California and promptly broke up six months later. (laughs) 
But it was December in Orange County. Like I was working Laguna Beach. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go back to Kentucky. I'm just going to, I'm just going to ride this, this wave yeah. out, see what happens. And, um, yeah, I lived in Southern California for several years. I ended up with Rubbermaid commercial products and they moved me up to LA and then they got rid of my job, but they really liked me. So they were like, just sit tight while we find you a different position within the company. So, so they moved me to Denver. I had to stay in Denver for about two years. I'd have to pay the reload back. It was like seven grand and I'd already spent it all at like Bed Bath & Beyond. So <laughs> so I was, you know, I'm like in Denver. I have no friends. I'm like 29. I'm a single black woman in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> like it was terrible. Okay, this is in LA where like all my friends are and we're like, I've built up like this community and it's not Louisville where my family is. Like it's physically in between. And so I don't know why I'm here. I have no desire to be here, but I need to stay. So what can I do to get through? So I decided I would apply to MFA programs. And I spent a lot of time taking writing workshops at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop, which I think is the largest writers workshop west of the Mississippi. So it's an incredible community. And that's what I did for two years. I studied the GRE. I took workshops. I got my, you know, portfolio together and I applied to MFA programs. And UC Riverside offered me the best funding. So I, I went back to California. And then once I had my MFA, I was like, okay, I want to focus full time on being a writer. So I'm going to move back to Louisville. The cost of living's lower. I built up a freelance writing career doing like content writing for startups um, and also writing my relationship advice column for Leo and publishing personal essays. So the writing covers most of my 20s and the book actually ends in Denver, you know, because I'm like 29 and I've just like learned all these things about myself and about dating and, you know, where all these issues come from. And but, you know, the the things that I was writing about are very, like, challenging things to write about. And then also to write about them well is is challenging. So I'm one of those writers that, like, I'm like a tortured writer. Like, like the writing is very, like, a torturous process to me. Oh, God, why did I choose this life? But, you know, the only time I don't feel worse than I do when I'm writing is when I should be writing, but I'm not. So I just keep writing. We're so glad Minda took time out of her busy schedule. She's getting ready to move. She's got a lot going on, but we're glad that she was able to chat with us. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. But before we go, we're going to hear from a reader about their five-star read. Hi, I'm Jessica B. from Chicago, Illinois. You can find me on Instagram at Tonight's Bookish Feast. The five-star book I'd like to tell you about is How to Be Remembered by Michael Thompson. Tommy Llewellyn is a boy destined to never be remembered. On the same day every year, everyone around him forgets he exists, and he grows up enduring his own universal reset. When Tommy falls in love, he is determined to find a way to trick the reset and figure out how to finally be remembered. This book has one of the most unique premises I've ever experienced. I can't imagine what it would be like if once a year, everyone around you forgot who you were, and your entire existence, your possessions, and your accomplishments are completely wiped out and rewritten by the universe. Because of the reset, Tommy is constantly having to explain his own existence and reestablish connections and relationships with the people around him. In many ways, this is a sad book. From the very start, I was completely invested in Tommy's journey. Even though Tommy remembers everyone in his life, it was heartbreaking to watch him experience the repeated grief when those he is closest to don't remember him. But as sad as some parts are, throughout the whole book I had hope and was rooting for Tommy that through his sheer determination and strength of will, he could figure out how to be remembered by the people he loved. I had no idea how the author would end the book, and that kept me turning the pages. I was completely absorbed in the story, and I just had to know how things ended up for Tommy. Without giving anything away, I'll just say that I found the ending completely satisfying. I don't think this book has gotten nearly enough attention, and I encourage you to pick up How to Be Remembered by Michael Thompson. Carrie, it is Valentine's Day. The book I'm going to talk about actually has somebody looking for love in it. What mm. kind of what kind of book are you talking about today? <laughs> what kind of book are you reading? I doubt it's about love. It is not about love. I mean, it does have the beginnings of a a relationship in it, but this is totally my type of book. So it's not 
lovey-dovey, smoochy-smoochy, sentimental, any of that stuff. The book I'm talking about is called The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Demoline. It is a futuristic, dystopian, middle grade and older novel, right? That sounds like me, about Uh a group of indigenous people, both adults and children, who are trying to avoid being captured by recruiters. So in this world, and it's set in like a dystopian Canada, climate destruction has resulted in a fraught natural world, as well as impacts on humans that they never expected. So white people have lost the ability to dream while Native Americans have retained it. Therefore, Natives are hunted and taken to what's called schools. This is a nod to the time of Indian boarding schools, where their bone marrow is harvested with the goal of making dreaming possible again. And so I don't know that it's explicitly said, but it's suggested that the bone marrow is not harvested and these people are kept alive. It's that they're, these people are destroyed in the process. So the novel makes real the fear of not only being stolen and having medical acts done on you without your permission, but of losing family, friends, and uh, cultural heritage and language in the process. It is bleak, but by the end of it, there's this relationship developing. And so they're not without hope. They kind of band together and and work together. And, you know, whenever there's situations like this, there's people on the inside who don't agree with what is being done to other people. So um, if you're interested in dystopian stories, if you're interested in Native stories, I would recommend this. Uh, The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimeline. So totally, you know, romantic, lovey-dovey, Get y'all revved up for love. So tell me about yours. So I read a book called Yinka, Where Is Your Husband? by Lizzie Damalola Blackburn. And so this is a novel set in London. And our main character, Yinka, is a Nigerian-British Oxford-educated woman who's in her 30s. And at the beginning of the novel, she has a great job, but she's just getting over a hard breakup. And her very traditional Nigerian mother is always asking her, where is your husband? So all of her cousins and her peers are getting married or having kids, and she is still single. And her mother and her mother's friends never let her forget it. So in the opening chapter, the big scene that sort of sets the stage for the book is that there's this large family gathering and uh, Yinka is humiliated when her auntie says a prayer before their meal in front of everyone, singling out Yinka, asking God to help her find a (laughs) husband. (laughs) And she's just completely mortified by this. And she decides that she needs to find a man, at least to go to the wedding of her cousin that's happening in the summer, which is about, I think, like six months away. So then what happens is that Yinka gets laid off from this awesome job that she has. She, she has no prospects for a date to take to this wedding. And her self-confidence is at an all new low. And so she makes her goal finding a new job and finding a boyfriend at least long enough to take to this wedding before she has to face the older women in her family, even if that means changing herself in order to do so. So this book is all about self-acceptance, and I think it addresses some fairly universal issues about pleasing your family versus pleasing yourself and worrying so much about your appearance that you lose who you are. So Yinka thinks that her skin is too dark. Her butt is too flat. Her figure is too boyish. Should she try a weave instead of her natural hair? And I think that's a universal thought for, I don't know if all men feel this way, but women, I think especially, are always very self-conscious about the way they look. So I loved Yinka as a character. She's kind of a mess, but she is smart and funny and full of sass, and you're really rooting for her. And one of the things that I especially enjoyed about this book is learning about Nigerian culture, as well as what the first and second generation experience is like in Britain for immigrants through Yinka's experience. Another thing that makes this book unique is that although it is a book that has a lot of dating in it, Yinka and her whole family are very religious and she does not believe in sex before marriage. And so this makes finding a match a little more rocky. That's not sort of the 
cultural expectation on a wider level, right? So it just makes dating more difficult. And that's not a subject that I've read much about in books dealing with women's stories. And the church that her mother goes to, it's a setting of of a lot of the book because it's a very important thing in her culture. This was a great audiobook. I highly recommend it. It was a fun, light listen. I, I wouldn't call this really a romance. You know, it's about her trying to find a mate, but it's more about her trying to become comfortable with herself and who she is. So again, the name of that book is Yinka, Where Is Your Husband? by Lizzie Demalola Blackburn. Cool. That one sounds there good. Go. Well, Carrie, we've come to the end. Okay. <laughs> We need to have a better ending to this, Carrie. <laughs> okay, we're done. See ya. You know I'm terrible at, at transitions. When I get done talking, I'm like, okay, I, well, it's time for me to go. Bye. <laughs> That's kind of the way you are on the phone and in person, too. And, See yeah. you later. That's it. I, okay, well, I'm done talking. Well, since I just were talking about a book about being yourself, we don't want you to be anything but yourself, Carrie. And so right. that's it. She's done. We'll talk to you <laughs> next week. <laughs> For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabookloverpod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. To send us a message, go to our website and click the contact button. You know, if you're feeling a little bit lovey-dovey about us, then you should tell a friend or write us a review on your favorite podcast platform to help other book lovers find us. And finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.